again. Wow. First, I want to say thank you. Thank you to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I also want to thank you all. It was particularly important to me to be commissioned by Gate City Vineyard. And I am humbled and I am grateful. So thank you. Before I begin the sermon, uh, I want to introduce you all to my family. And yes, y'all have to stand. <laughs> so I'm going to start with my daddy, Bill Harris. This is the first time that he will hear me preach a sermon, but in person, but he reads all of my sermons. So thank you, Daddy. Um, next, I want to introduce my sister, Melissa Harris Perry. I want you to stay standing for a minute because now I want to introduce her husband, James Perry. And their youngest child, my niece, Anna James Perry. And I really just want to take a moment to say that I know that we are family, that you all have been there for me through everything, good and bad. And I am so grateful that we are family, but also that we are friends. Thank you. And finally, most of you have seen, if not met, my youngest child, Nathia Elise. I call her my ride or die. Um, I love you, honey, and I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. I was okay until they read that letter from Rand. That was a surprise. So this is truly an amazing morning, and, and I am humbled. And I want you to know that while this is a transition, I absolutely love some of the words that were said. There were things that, that I will do that I don't know anything about. But I do know that this is a season of transition for me. But I am not. I am not leaving Gate City Vineyard. I'm <laughs> You're stuck with me. I am transitioning my focus, if you will. You know, for the past 33 years, I have been a wife, a mother, a daughter, which will continue, thankfully, um, and a, a caregiver. And my focus has been mostly on others, and, and I've been blessed. Do not get me wrong. I have been blessed in all of that. But now I get to flip that a little bit, and I get to focus on where my heart really is, and that is in ministry, in ministry outside of my own four walls at home. Um, and I actually believe it to be God's blessing. You know, God says from time to time to us, well done, and then he, oh, okay. God says to us from time to time, well done. And then he blesses us in a particular way. And I really feel like this is that moment. 
where he's saying you have been faithful over a few things and I'm going to bless you with some other things. And that is this moment for me. Um, I had my first, um, the first experience that I can remember um, with, of God when I was five or six years old in the Episcopal Church. And then at 16, I had another significant encounter with God in the Baptist Church. And then I surrendered my life to the Lord when I was in college in the Apostolic Church. And this month marks my 19th year in the vineyard. And I am truly excited and amazed at all that God has done and really looking forward to what he will do. Again, I will continue to serve here. I am praying to go back um, to foreign missions. I'm open to where God calls me, any place in the world, but that is my heart. And I want you all to know how truly grateful I am this morning. So let us pray. Father God, I thank you. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way this morning. I pray that you would bless each person who hears this sermon this morning. I pray that you would bless me to be able to deliver what you have given me. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And I just ask that you have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to continue in um, the book of John, and we're now in the 12th chapter. And this is John's transition chapter. We have now come to the end of Jesus' public ministry. This series of transition events serve as the conclusion of the book of signs and he's transitioning into the book of glory. Unlike the book of signs, which focuses on Jesus's public ministry, the book of glory focuses on his private ministry with his disciples. Beth, as she said, will begin our look at the book of glory in January after the holidays. But today, here we are in chapter 12, and as John is beginning to shift his focus away from Jesus' public ministry, he shares three stories that we're going to look at during this final week, I mean this final events before the Passion Week. The first is a story of Mary anointing Jesus' feet. And then there's a story about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And finally, a story about some Greeks who want to see Jesus. Each of these stories has significance within the larger narrative about the kingship of Jesus. In the first of our three stories, we see Jesus returning yet again to Bethany. As Beth told us last week, this is where um, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and it is also near where they wanted to kill Jesus. Jesus arrives for a public meal 
in his honor at a home in Bethany, just two miles outside of Jerusalem. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages, he said. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. I am struck by the fact that Jesus returns to Bethany on his way to the cross. It is further proof um, of what Beth mentioned last week about the relationship between Jesus, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. That he would, he would want to see these people before he is crucified. It must have been um, a really special meal that, that they shared. And uh, Mary has even maybe a little bit more special um, contribution to make. The last time Jesus was at Bethany, Mary had fallen at his feet and cried, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Even in her grief, she honored Jesus as her Lord. Now we find Mary at Jesus' feet again. This time, anointing them with a pint of pure nard. Mary's gift of anointing was remarkably extreme. She used a lot, a lot, about a pound of a very costly oil of nard, which is sometimes called, um, I hope I get this right, spike nard. Um, uh, let me just tell you what I learned about spike nard so that we all understand exactly what Mary did. We can appreciate what she did for Jesus. Spike nard was an uncommon perfume extracted from the spike nard plant native to India's eastern Himalayas. The best spike nard was imported from India in sealed alabaster containers. It was very expensive because of the tedious extraction process and the cost of importing it from India to the Western Mediterranean. In verse 5, Judas calculates its value at 300 denarii, which at the wage of about a denarius per day was nearly a year's wages. This perfume might be worth about $30,000 today. So spices and ointments were often used as an investment. They were small, portable, and could be easily sold. And this is clearly what is on Judas's mind, the selling part. 
Mary uses an ointment so valuable that it was normally reserved and used only as a gift for kings and nobility. This was the gift that Mary brought to Jesus. But Mary's gift was also remarkably unselfconscious. Not only did she give the, the gift of the expensive oil, but she also wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. This means that she let her hair down in public, something a Jewish woman rarely did. Respectable women didn't go out in public with their hair down. That was a mark of a loose woman. But Mary had let her hair down and was drying the extra perfume from Jesus' feet with her hair. Not only did Mary sacrifice what may have been her life savings, she also sacrificed her reputation. To worship Jesus, Mary was willing to be thought of as immodest or even immoral. True worship is not concerned about what others think of us. Mary's gift was also remarkably humble. When a guest entered a home during Jesus' time, usually the guest's feet were washed with water and the guest's head was anointed um, with a dab of perfume. Here, Mary uses the precious ointment to anoint the feet of Jesus. She considered her oil only worthy for his feet. To attend to the feet was the job of slaves, and yet Mary does it. Mary's actions show great humility as well as great devotion. So Mary's anointing of Jesus' feet is a prophetic act that is both a sign of Jesus' kingship and its formal announcement. John tells us this story because the, the anointing of Jesus' feet with oil is like the anointing of the kings in the Jewish tradition. Jesus is being anointed king publicly. Now, as I was preparing for this sermon, I learned a lot about a lot of things, but I learned a lot about the anointing of Jewish kings. And you got to hear this because I found this very interesting. Um, so there are several recorded instances in the Old Testament in which kings were anointed. Samuel the prophet anointed both Saul and David, and Zadok the priest anointed Solomon. So here's where it gets really, really interesting. The Jewish tradition has a book called the Talmud. The Talmud is the collection of oral traditions called Mishnah with commentary called Gemara. And the Babylonian Talmud is the authoritative version that continues to guide and inform orthodox, orthodox and conservative Jewish religion today. They still use the Talmud in Orthodox and conservative Jewish tradition. The Talmud explains that whereas all high priests were anointed, a king was only anointed 
if he began a new dynasty or if there was some controversy surrounding his appointment. So no, not all kings were anointed. Some controversy or instability existed at the time that each of the kings that I named above were anointed. When Saul was anointed, he was the first king of the Jewish people, a new dynasty. When David was anointed, Saul was still reigning, so a little controversial. And when Solomon was anointed, it was because his brother, Adonijah, challenged him for the throne. Again, a bit controversial. Jesus is anointed king in the midst of great controversy, and we know that he ushers in a new dynasty. A new kind of kingdom has come with a new king. Hallelujah. John's next story paints a picture of the anointed king's arrival. Most of us are familiar with the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We hear it most Palm Sundays. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So this event takes place the day after Jesus is anointed by Mary. As Jesus travels towards Jerusalem, the crowd grows. It's the Passover. People are traveling there. And people begin to wave palm branches and to shout. Now, I always thought that the waving of palm branches um, originated here on what we now call Palm Sunday. But I found a really interesting explanation of the waving of the palm branches in the Africa Bible commentary. Here's what it says. The fact that they carried palm branches as they celebrated his arrival was significant. For there were only two contexts within which the, Jewish, the Jews carried palm branches. At the Feast of Tabernacles, which you can find in Leviticus 23, and at the celebration of the rededication of the temple in 164 BC. Ever since that time, the palm seems to have been a symbol of Judea, equivalent to a national flag. It seems likely that the people were thinking of the events in 164 BC when the Maccabees' victory over the Syrians had been, been celebrated by waving branches of palm trees. Jesus was being welcomed as another liberator, one who would free them from the Romans, or so they thought. So the people greeted Jesus with palms and with shouts of Hosanna, which means save us, we beseech you, or give us victory now. 
The crowd also shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were acknowledging what Jesus had been saying all along. He was sent from the Father. Their final cry, blessed is the king of Israel, shows that they thought that Jesus, that Jesus' mission was to rule Israel and that his immediate task was to win victory for the, for, from the Romans. They were ready to follow him into battle. But Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, not on a white war horse. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a young donkey has profound messianic significance as the fulfillment of prophecy. When Jesus rides on a young donkey that no one has ever ridden on before, he is initiating a kingly act. He is revealing openly that he is the Messiah. He is greeted with fanfare, but he is also importantly, again, not on a horse, but on a lowly donkey. The animal symbolizes both humility and peace. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had been and that they had done these things to him. What the disciples realized had been written about Jesus and had been done to him is found in Zechariah 9. And I've got Zechariah 9:10. And the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus very intentionally acts out the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 and declares his humble, gentle kingship. It is interesting to me that in Zechariah's prophecy, the gentle king who comes into Jerusalem riding a young donkey is the same king who will defeat chariots at war. And that same king will bring, bring peace to all of the nations. John picks this up again in one of the final scenes in the book of Revelation. A picture of the conquering Christ riding a white war horse is found in Revelation 19. But today, today, Jesus rides a donkey in humility with the hope of peace. This reminds me of the tension that we live in 
as Christians, the now and the not yet. Jesus is king, and yet his kingdom has not yet fully come here on earth. Jesus has been anointed by Mary and has just entered into Jerusalem with the pomp and circumstance of a king. And the crowds have been talking about the incredible miracle that he did in Bethany when he raised uh, Lazarus from the dead. And now John tells us, in the midst of all of this, that some Greeks have come to see Jesus. Now, the term Greeks probably is kind of a generic term for um, God-fearers. And these were people who were attracted to, to Judaism um, by its uh, monotheism and its morality, but they weren't so sure about the circumcision of it all. So they were Gentiles, non-Jews, and they were permitted to, um, to sit in the court of the Gentiles, but they were not permitted um, to go into the inner courts of the synagogue. So the Greeks simply say to Philip, we would like to see Jesus. John does not tell us um, that the Greeks get to see Jesus. We don't know from this narrative. But we can assume that what Jesus says next is prompted by their request. Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach the people who have watched him make his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. The crowd included those who were enthusiastic, but clueless. His disciples who were committed, but confused. Those from Bethany who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus from the dead and who were probably very committed. The Pharisees um, who represented all those who opposed Jesus. And finally, the Greeks who themselves probably represented the curious and the truth seekers. So all of these types of people make up the audience to which Jesus is speaking. And he tells them that his final hour has come. You might recall that um, Beth shared with us that during his first miracle, um, the turning of water into wine at the wedding, that when his mother told him about the need for more wine, Jesus initially told her that his time had not yet come. And he was referring to his time of public ministry, the time of publicly displaying his power. But Jesus goes on to perform that miracle, and his public ministry begins. And as Beth noted last week when she preached about Lazarus, during those years, all attempts, and there were some, to hurt or kill him were unsuccessful because his public ministry was not yet complete. Now, the hour for his passion has come. The remaining journey is to the cross. His time has come. His purpose for coming to earth is about to be fulfilled. Now, while most people agreed that Jesus was indeed a king, they did not understand how he, how he would rule. 
most were thinking that he would be a major political and military figure, but they were wrong. Jesus himself begins to tell them the type of king he would be. Verily, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. In verses 24 through 26, Jesus makes three statements that have a common message about how Jesus, the king, is prepared to do everything needed in order to be king of our lives. Each verse helps explain the other two. And we're going to take a look at these verses. In these verses, Jesus moves from speaking primarily about himself to speaking exclusively about those who truly follow him. The first statement is in verse 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Knowing that he is on his way to die on the cross, Jesus is talking about himself here. He is that kernel of wheat. He will fall to the ground and die. But through his death, his life will be multiplied. The hour that has come will involve the glorification of the Son of Man. The Jews thought that this glorification would mean great military victory, particularly over the Romans. But Jesus knew that his glorification or recognition of his kingship would come through death. And he used the illustration of a grain of wheat to explain this. No matter how healthy that grain is, its glory lies in its death. Because only as it dies will it produce a new plant with many seeds. If Christ does not die, there will be no Christ-like people. And to elaborate on this, Jesus makes another statement in verse 25. The man who loves his life will lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. At this point, we might wonder, well, now who is Jesus talking about or talking to? Is he still talking about himself, himself or is he now talking about us? I think it's probably both. This statement uses a paradox or hyperbole to make a point, to drive a point home. For the Greeks, the goal of human existence was bound up with self-fulfillment and the attainment of personal maturity. Following Christ, however, involves sacrifice, 
sacrifice of oneself and one's own interests. This truth is seen in Jesus on the cross. This is acknowledging that we are not king of our own lives. The person who chooses to cling to life loses it. But the person who hates their life gains eternal life. This is the opposite of what we might uh, probably expect. We would assume that someone who loves their life would do all of the right things. They would eat right, they would exercise, whatever on that. They would exercise, they would probably have a security system, whatever it takes to protect themselves and to live long. On the other hand, we probably think if you don't really care about how long you're gonna live, you probably have a riskier lifestyle. You're not so cautious. So why do Jesus' words ring contrary to common sense? It is because Jesus himself is the life. Jesus is saying that those who love their lives and refuse to die with him will not see eternal life. However, those who hate their lives and die to self by allowing Christ to reign in them they will gain eternal life. The abundant life God has for us involves us dying to self and putting Jesus on the throne of our lives. Then we will see the kind of fruitful plan he grows in our lives from the seed of our sacrificial faith. In the third and final of our stories or illustrations that Jesus shares. He is now primarily speaking of his audience. His own life illustrates the truth of what he is sharing. But Jesus is making his appeal to anyone who will listen. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Again, we see a demand with a promise. Like the requirement that the seed must die to multiply, and like the love for this world that must take a backseat to our love for Christ, now Jesus is illustrating what all of this looks like. And it looks like obedience obedient service to a king who deserves it. This teaching adheres closely with the teaching, uh, the teacher-disciple relationships of first century Palestine. Being a disciple required personal attachment to the teacher because the disciple learned not just from the teacher's words, but also from watching the teacher's actions. A disciple of Jesus is someone with a servant's heart. So how do we describe someone who has a servant's heart? How do we, how do we recognize that? The text tells us that a true servant with a servant's heart 
has discovered the joy of having died to his own selfish ambitions and given himself to the desires of his master. Now, I want us to return for just a moment to verse 2. I don't have this on the slide because anybody who has either preached or prepared a, a text to be um, given knows you go over and over and over it. And here's what the Holy Spirit gave me. So there's no slide for this. Let us go back to verse 2 for a minute. I'm going to read it. John tucks a detail in there that might seem irrelevant until now. So here's a dinner. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served. While Lazarus was uh, among those reclining at the table with him. Martha served. So is it possible that this is Martha's sacrifice? She wanted to be at the table listening. She wanted to be at the feet of Jesus with Mary. But she knew that that dinner doesn't happen if somebody doesn't serve it. Y'all cut Martha a break. Martha denied what she wanted and did what was needed. This is counter. This is counterculture, particularly in today's world. All you hear is, you know, do you. Be true to you. Do what you want to do. You're told that you're foolish when you, when you turn down that job that's going to pay you all that money because God has called you somewhere that's going to pay no money, <laughs> but that's going to win people for the kingdom. And you say, yes, Lord. A servant who focuses on the desires of God will find his own desires being fulfilled every single time. Psalm 37 says, delight, your, excuse me, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You can't beat serving God. So I'm going to ask the worship team and the prayer teams to get in place as we land this plane, as they say. So John draws this transitional chapter to a close by returning us to the purpose of his writing of this gospel. In verse 38, he, he says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. So here we are with a concluding declaration and invitation. Jesus came the first time and he is coming again. And he is coming as King of Kings and Lord of Lords.
until he comes, there's a time of amnesty and forgiveness and patience. He still rides a donkey, y'all, and not that white war horse. He is ready to save all who receive him as Savior and King. So now each of us has a choice, a moment to decide, is he king or is he not? If you have not given your life to the Lord, now is the time. Some, some of us, we have surrendered our lives to the Lord but we haven't made him king of our lives. If you've surrendered, but you haven't put him on the throne of your life, I ask you, are you ready to bend the knee? We have people here to pray for you, and I would implore you, if you haven't given your life to the Lord, please come for prayer. And if you are one of those people who has given their life to the Lord and you are doing things for him and you love him, but you know that you have not seated him as king of your life, please don't walk out of here today without getting prayer.